0: VR training platforms, like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International, are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients.
1: As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop.
0: Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The legends are true! Overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny! Yes!
2: It's Friday, February 20th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis.
0: And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters.
2: You can find us online at motherjones.com slash minds, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast.
0: This episode is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming or DVD and CD. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And now for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of The Science of Mindfulness, a research-based path to well-being. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. That's com slash inquiringminds. So Indra, this week I went to the AAAS meeting, which is the largest scientific society here in the US, and they had their annual meeting in San Jose. I
2: know, I was um, terribly sorry that I couldn't go, but I was performing in an opera in the city, so too many conflicts.
0: And- This meeting has hundreds of presentations uh, from all disciplines of science, but they've invested a lot in tracks on science communication. And the most impressive person I saw speak on science communication was Kathleen Hall Jameson, who runs the Annenberg Public Policy Center. So what's the first thing you think of when I say 2016? Election. Sadly, that's the first thing in my mind, too, It is 21 months away, but that's already on the media's mind and, and unfortunately, on the minds of many people. And it's taking over the news cycle. And just in the past couple of weeks, we've seen some interesting stories come out of the mouths of certain possible presidential candidates, whether it's Rand Paul talking about uh, effects of vaccines on children, which was, uh, he made a dubious claim at best on CNBC, or there was Representative Gar- Gary Palmer of Alabama Uh, claiming that temperature data used to uh, substantiate climate change had been falsified, which is a pretty significant claim. Uh, And that's where my conversation with Kathleen Hall Jamieson came in. Uh, She started factcheck.org at the Annenberg Public Policy Center. And loyal listeners to our show will remember a couple weeks ago, we started talking about SciCheck, which is a new initiative she started uh, to check the scientific claims of uh, candidates. And she leverages established sources from the scientific community to quickly vet whether or not what they're saying is true, so it gets back into the media cycle. Uh, But it's also the goal is to make politicians think a little bit more carefully when they make scientific claims. Uh, I was very excited to have a chance to speak with her. And we talked about the genesis of this idea, and a surprising name came up.
1: When Michelle Bachman in the last election made an allegation about the effects of, I believe it was a vaccine. Um, in it was public,
0: HPV. Yeah. Uh, in,
1: in public space on national television. And the journalists in the real context didn't know how to respond to the statement as clearly as they ought to. Because the time to contextualize is immediately. That should have been shot down immediately. It happened quickly, but not as quickly as one would have liked. We realized at factcheck.org, which has been in existence since 2003, that we needed to have science capacity in our staff where very specific kind of science journalism training was at place so that it didn't take us as long as it took us to get the fact, check. we got it fact checked. But if we'd had a science reporter on staff, we would have been up there instantly because we, we were covering all those debates. We were filing in real time on those debates and that happened very close to one of the debates. And so we could have fed into the media stream with our debate coverage, the correction, instead of doing it about 12 hours later.
0: So, Indre, I don't think Michelle Bachman is going to be making many appearances on this show, but I was impressed at how fervently she said time is uh, is of the utmost importance. What's your reaction to the notion of sidecheck making a difference?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I love that the fact that sidecheck has come along. I think it's, you know, it's long overdue. And I really do think that nowadays, it seems as though politicians understand that using scientific data or claiming they know scientific data can help sway their public which which is good right i mean that, that's that's nice that the public does feel that science has some sway but it's bad if they get the facts wrong or they get the science wrong or you know even worse if they are nefariously either cherry picking or you know just just trying to put together a policy under the guise of it being scientific data so I think there there needs to be some kind of a watchdog. Um, and, you know, I hope that this is an effective way to do it. Um, but I certainly see the need.
0: I think there's going to be a lot of issues that are going to be part of the 2016 cycle that science is at the front of, whether it's climate change or energy policy, or even health with the whole debate around vaccines uh, reemerging over the past couple weeks. So I think this is going to be an essential tool Uh, whether or not it actually takes off in the way they want is a good question. Uh, But I think it's a useful experiment. This is the first time in a long time I've seen traditional journalism go back to science as a source.
2: Yeah, I mean, the only other example I can see of something that's similar is like John Oliver's show, or, you know, you, John Stewart, although he's leaving, I don't know exactly how soon that's going to happen. We're losing him. And, you know, we're losing Colbert to the Late Show. So, you know, there are these major changes that are happening in some of the sources in which this that, you know, that can serve as these watchdogs. So hopefully, sidecheck will fill some of the voids left behind by those individuals, too.
0: And as much as I love Comedy Central, I'm thankful there's Another news source entering the (laughs) fold in the presidential campaign. So AAAS is a big meeting where big news is often made. Usually it's big news, whether it's a report around plastic in the ocean, which broke last week, or in this case, my favorite news item, bionic implants. So I'm going to tell you something about me, Um, listeners. I wear glasses. I'm an imperfect human being. I need augmentation, unlike my co-host Indra, who rolls out of bed and is just perfect.
2: I'm glad you think so. I wear contacts.
0: (laughs) You do wear contacts? Yeah. Well, this story is for you. Because I went to a session on uh, retinal implants and prosthetics for eyes. And one of the items they had on display was a telescopic contact lens, one that would allow you – to magnify uh, an item in, in the field of view 2.8 times. So
2: yeah, you sent me a link to this story, and I looked it up, and I just I still don't understand how it actually works. So is it like you know I tap the side of my head, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden it zooms in, or like what is how does it work?
0: Even cooler than tapping the side of your head. Uh, right now, it's in a prototype stage, so it works in conjunction with a set of glasses. So you wear a set of glasses. And the glasses have mirrors on them that essentially recognize your facial features. So if you wink, it activates this contact lens by shifting the polarization on the lens of the glass lens in front of it and redirecting light into the part of the contact lens that is actually doing the magnification. So you just wink and you see at 2.8x.
2: Oh my God. People thought Google Glass was bad and they called them glass holes. People who were wearing Google Glass. This is way worse. I mean, so you'd have no idea if a person is zooming in and, you know, into your face.
0: So before we get to the, uh, to the, that perspective, this is just a prototype. They aren't even in human trials yet. There's some big problems with the technology there still aiming to solve the fact that they still haven't been able to get oxygen in behind the lens. And for contact wearers that might be listening to this show, um, that makes contacts uh, very manageable to wear if there's some air permeability. So they still have some um, things to work out. But what's exciting about this technology and some of the others that Eric Tremblay, who uh, spirited this work out of the EPFL in Switzerland, are really looking for is this can help restore and augment sight for those who have macular degeneration and other uh, degenerative diseases that have impacted their ability to see uh, a a strong field of view. So this can really make a difference for somebody who's, you know, essentially almost blind right now in terms of their visual acuity. I don't think they're going to be handing them out to you and me anytime soon.
2: (laughs) Okay, well, I'll wait to see how that prototype works out. Um, But one of the things that caught my eye this week is a new finding that just underscores to me one of the really optimistic things I think about in biological science these days. So, in the you know in the past few years, the news that has come out about um, AIDS and HIV has has been pretty positive. We've seen a few people who seem to have um, the right kind of um, antibodies to fight off the disease that you know don't have don't don't get the disease and so forth. Um, and I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I feel like our chance to cure this disease or to have a vaccine in my lifetime is, is you know, almost going to be 100%. And I, I really am excited to see this as to, as a major science success story in the coming decade, maybe even. So just this week in the journal Nature, there was a paper that was published um, that that culminated, uh, that there was the work of, you know, a dozen scientists at a dozen different institutions. And, you know, a lot of people think that the way to cure or create a vaccine for HIV is to use the immunity of some of the people who have been shown to be resistant, right? So they have produced some natural antibodies that seem to, you know, not allow the disease to take hold. Um, but these guys, or these scientists, I should say, took a different tack. Um, instead of trying to find out which of the natural antibodies in our in our bodies or in nature can fight fight it off, they actually created in the lab a molecule that mimics an antibody in our immune system. And they actually suggest that it might have even more protective power than anything the body actually produces. So the main results are that they have four monkeys that were injected with this drug, and they were free of HIV infection even after eight months, despite injections of large doses of the virus.
0: Um, So So how does this actually work? When you say mimicking uh, the HIV... Sort of function. Is it, are they essentially like attaching something onto the end of the antibody to make it appear? Like it's something that it's not?
2: So, okay, so the way that HIV infects cells, um, like many viruses, it infects white blood cells by attaching to receptors on the cell surface, right? So it, it attaches to the receptor, the cell doesn't realize that it's a, you know, foreign thing. Um, and so the the, um, the virus inserts its own genetic material into the cell and makes it into a factory to, that reproduces itself. Um, now, what happens with this new compound is that it also binds to the same receptors that HIV is interested in. So effectively, it blocks off the HIV. And not only that, but the vehicle in which uh, this new compound comes in is an adeno-associated virus, which itself is it's small and it's benign, but it turns those cells into factories making its own protein. So the nice thing is, is that you can have presumably if this works in humans, it's still only right now in these monkeys, Um, but you could turn, you could, you could inject someone with this drug and then the protein can be continuously made for years, if not decades within their own bodies. So that would act like a vaccine, essentially blocking off um, HIV from being able to bind to these cells. And it, you know, it turns out that this new drug blocks every strain of HIV that we've seen so far that has been isolated in humans or in, or in macaques, um, including the ones that are the the hardest to stop, and that's really been the challenge with HIV, is that it has so many mutants, um, and so. But so far, this one has been effective against all of them.
0: This seems really positive, but I know, I know, we say this a lot too. It's in the early stages. Do you think this is has the potential to replace the na- natural antibody work that is? You know, it's progressed to human trials at this point. A lot of that work.
2: I mean, look. I think now it's a race to the to the finish line. You know, I think whoever gets the the data first that shows that they have an effective vaccine or or even a cure, um, you know, that's going to be the winner. Obviously, um, but I also think that there, you know, if you're if you're only following one direction, one line of evidence, or one pathway to a cure, you know, that if if there's one, if there's a problem that comes in in the human trials and all of these natural antibody, you know. Uh, studies, then we can't really overcome that. But here's like a whole other way of thinking about it. Um, that you know, so who knows? I, I don't know who's going to be there first. Um, but uh, but I'm excited to see that that you know we seem to be so
0: close. I share your enthusiasm. I I'm fairly confident, based off of lots of conversations with scientists, that HIV is going to be a thing of the past in the first half of the 21st century
2: which is amazing, because I think, you know, you and I grew up at a time when HIV was the big story, you know, when it first came around, it was this worldwide epidemic. I mean, obviously, it's still a huge problem um, around the world. But, it's, you know, yeah, it's kind of amazing. Um, I wanted to let our listeners know as well about something that's coming up for uh, me in the Bay Area on March sixth. So I've been working on integrating my science of music and, and sort of the neuroscience of of memory into a lecture slash performance because sometimes when I actually sing during a talk, um I get a fairly good response from the audience. So I've put together a show called Music is a Gateway to the Brain and we'll be performing it with my um pianist, Keisuke Nakagoshi, who's a Grammy nominated pianist, is really awesome, on March 6th at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music in their concert hall at 8 p.m. It's a Friday night and it's totally free. So if you're in the Bay Area, come and check it out. 8pm, um, Friday, March sixth.
0: So now with that, let's take a short break. And we'll be back with my interview with Kathleen Hall Jameson. It's already February, what are you waiting for? Invest in yourself this year and start learning something new at lynda.com with a free 10 day trial. Lynda.com is used by millions of people around the world and has over 3,000 courses on topics like web development, photography, visual design, and business, as well as software training like Excel, WordPress, and Photoshop. All of their courses are taught by experts, and new courses are added to the site every week. Whether you want to set new financial goals, find work-life balance, invest in a new hobby, ask your boss for a raise, find a new job, or improve upon your current job skills in 2015— Lynda.com has something for everyone. Sign up for your free 10-day trial today by visiting lynda.com slash minds, and you'll get unlimited access to every course on lynda.com, as well as access to view tutorials on tablets, iPhone and Android devices, and access to new courses added every week. There are courses like Getting Things Done, Business Writing Fundamentals, Small Business Secrets breaking out of a rut, and foundations of photography. Invest in yourself and sign up for a free 10-day trial to lynda.com by visiting lynda.com slash minds. Learn something new in 2015.
2: At Inquiring Minds, we really understand that learning is a lifelong task, and that's why we are big fans of The Great Courses. And this year, The Great Courses is celebrating its 25th anniversary. They offer engaging lectures by top professors who are experts in their field. I recently watched The Science of Mindfulness, a research-based path to well-being by Doctor of Psychology Ronald D. Siegel of Harvard Medical School and the University of Massachusetts Medical School. And in this course, Dr. Siegel provides interesting insights into how ancient wisdom and traditions combined with the discoveries of modern science can help us better deal with everyday difficulties and live richer, fuller lives. I think this is a really cool course. I was really skeptical about um, mindfulness meditation until I delved into the science, and it turns out there's some pretty convincing data that it can have an effect on your life. For a limited time, The Great Courses is giving a special offer to our listeners. Order The Science of Mindfulness, a research-based path to well-being, and get 80% off the original price. But this 80% savings is only available for a limited time. Don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to take advantage of this special offer. That's thegreatcourses.com slash minds.
0: Kathleen Hall Jameson, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I was surprised to run into a public policy expert at a scientific conference, but I guess it makes sense because it seems like politicians in Congress have been putting a lot of pressure on science lately.
1: Within the last three or four years, they've been standing up and attacking, particularly social science, and saying that what it does just isn't worthy of funding. Uh, that caught my attention, and it caught the attention of the folks at factcheck.org, which is an organization within the Antibagraph Public Policy Center that tries to check accuracy of claims in politics. And one of the things we ask in factcheck.org is, is the allegation that is made accurate And if it's accurate and they're generalizing to make it typical, is this a a legitimate generalization? Can you say actually that that instance is typical? So I got interested in this because I saw people whose work I care about being attacked in the political domain, which
0: I study. And. That's a new development. You don't see this historically as been a a case, and this has been a trend line that's been continuing for a number of years. There's something that's happened over the past few years that has actually led to this new development.
1: It's happened before. You had the Golden Fleece Awards going back into the 70s. So you've had moments in which people have stood up and have made fun of parts of science. But the effort to say that we have to cut back funding um, has been taken seriously in the recent environment because in a highly polarized environment, when we begin to say one political party is advocating it more so than the other political party, um, and in the process, calling into question parts of the social scientific enterprise that are really important if we're to continue to understand things from our past as we project into the future, now you've got the attention of a lot of people who may not do that kind of social science but say, wait a minute, I use the G.S.S., I use the NES. These data sets make it possible for us to understand important demographic trends across time and the way in which they attach to attitudes.
0: And you brought up the polarized climate. We can't avoid it. People are selecting their own sort of media sources, and and it seems to be continuing um, uh, on a trend line that it's going to become even more polarized as we go along. Uh, How are scientists navigating this currently?
1: The challenge for science is that in the multimedia environment world, multimedia world in which they find themselves, you have all sorts of issues that once were discussed within the scientific community that are now being blogged outside the scientific community, and sometimes with very good effect. Some of the innovations that have occurred because we are a wired society mean that we're catching scientific errors more quickly. Take a look at the Obacata case in which the pluripotent stem cell issue was being raised. Major article published in Nature. Very quickly, PubPeer had comments on it saying, wait a minute, let's look at this, let's look at this, let's look at that. We didn't have that before. Now, that's a change in the media environment that is affecting science and it's helping science. But meantime, when that retraction ultimately occurs, The question for the traditional media, as well as those that are in the the blogged world, is how do they treat that retraction? Do they frame it as science catching its error, retracting, and as a result correcting the scholarly stream, or do they say a retraction, science is broken, what's going wrong And so we live in a world in which there are now more outlets doing more things, more capacity to catch error, but also more danger that once a media theme begins to emerge, it becomes a meme, and as a result is uncritically relayed, and that it says science is broken, when actually some of the evidence they're using for science being broken is actually evidence that science is working, that is it's catching its errors, that's what a retraction is all about.
0: We're going to come back to the retraction topic very soon, but I, I want to talk a little bit more about this this polarized climate and how um, how scientists are going to position themselves in it to actually reach these audiences that are, are approaching scientists sometimes in a partisan filter. Uh, I'm curious, how do you actually engage somebody that's coming from a perspective that's colored in a way that science may be broken or science runs antithetical to some of the belief systems that I have?
1: Well, first... We have to acknowledge and be very aware that we all suffer from confirmation bias. We're all human, and we tend not to see the biases in our own ideology and that are filtering through our own values. We see them very readily when they're in somebody else. And so the, the tendency to say, I'm above this, but, oh, look, they're susceptible to is, is one that's pernicious and which we need to avoid. One of the things that science does is ensures, as best it can, that my human biases are corrected by your human biases – because science is a competitive environment in which your job as a scientist is to check the science done by others in your, in your area and when it's wrong to point it out aggressively in order with data sets openly accessible to find out what we can know given the available evidence. And so we start out by saying we all are biased. And we're not when we deal with what we say. There's a bias over there, and as a result, they are misfiltering science. Well, there are biases in all of us, and we're all misfiltering something. We've got to get a corrective context in which we can talk to each other and see how those biases are operating and minimize the likelihood that they interfere with our getting to what we can know.
0: How do you walk the line as as a scientist uh, when you acknowledge your biases? but still trying to maintain a level of credibility that you are uh, representing sort of a consensus uh, potentially in a, a lot of these uh, topic areas.
1: Let me start by saying that science is highly credible. Even in an environment which there are many attacks, scientists in the scientific community still retain very high credibility. But it's not as high as we would like it to be. And in a polarized environment in which people, instead of attacking an instance in which they find the science problematic, when they tend to to attack science in general, they're making a generalization we've got to thwart. So we have to say, what is it specifically that you're concerned about? And let's talk about that specific concern because it's always possible that those people whom ideologically we might disagree with in our other lives when we are not being scientists and we're talking politics, may, in fact, have just pointed out something that's a legitimate flaw in the scientific enterprise, and perhaps that means we should, we should begin to work to figure out how we minimize the likelihood that it has effects. Let me give you a recent example. Very recently, NASA and NOAA put up the finding that 2014 was the warmest year on record. Um, they put up a slide, slide five in their slide presentation, when they did the press conference at an hour and three minutes talking about the warmest year ever, but they didn't feature the fact that it wasn't categorically the warmest year. It was probably the warmest year. It was more probably 2014 than the other contenders. The people who first pointed that out were people that are ordinarily called the climate science deniers. Now, usually we would say, well, they're the climate science deniers. Let's not talk to them. In this case, their vigilance in watching the scientists pointed out that that should have been a probabilistic claim The scientific community that had articulated said, but we actually made it that way. See, there's slide five, but they hadn't featured it. Now it's more clearly featured, and as a result, we had a good outcome, a clear understanding of what the data said. So there are times in which listening to the people who are being hypervigilant because their ideology is dictating it is actually extraordinarily useful for science, and not quickly marginalizing everybody who says there's a problem without listening.
0: But does that engagement actually come with uh, a positive outcome? Are we shifting their attitudes in this, in engaging this uh, in this community that is is somewhat set against uh, the concept? I see what you're saying. There's a benefit back to the science when we're when we can be open like that. But are we actually shifting the position of of the people that pointed that out? What we want
1: to be able to do in the long term is shift the positions of elites to coincide with the consensus of science because they're the ones who are making the decisions. What what do you
0: mean by elite?
1: The the policymakers who have to decide whether or not we act now to do something about carbon. Mm -hmm. And so to the extent that they hear voices that are raising strong dissent and they believe there isn't a consensus, when there is, we have a problem. The job of the scientific community is to explain with clarity how it knows what it knows, and the certainty with which it knows it. And also to illustrate the risk of non-action in an environment in which doubt is raised about the level of certainty. And so the question for those in the scientific community articulating the consensus is how do we communicate that to those who matter? One doesn't have to have universal agreement to have the outcomes that one needs in order to correct a problem. In this case, We've got too much carbon in the atmosphere. We've got to stop this process. Are many alternative ways to stop the process, but we've got to acknowledge the problem first before we can do this. Now, here's what's hopeful about this. This process of continued scientific push toward understanding and continued you know, assertion of scientific agreement is subtly shifting the debate toward the assumption that there is a problem humans are playing a role and the disagreement is about how great is the role and can science do anything about it. That's actually a concession that wasn't there 15 years ago. But we may need a stronger set of concessions in order to get action because to the extent that those who are in the policymaking community overhear the voices of the doubters and underhear the voices of the consensus, they are less likely to act.
0: And is it legitimate looking at historical um Uh, policy records, that we could see a shift on an issue like this, which has been so divisive for such a long period of time? We
1: need to talk about the stories of success. We need to talk about cases in which conservatives and liberals agreed, and they acted in concert with science to do something effective. We need to talk about chlorofluorocarbons. Basic science identified the problem. Major governmental organizations documented. NASA playing an important role in documenting. An iconic visual shows the nature of the problem. Science says people in the general public, skin cancer. Problem because of the exposure created when we have an ozone layer crisis. Republicans and Democrats worked together in order to act. But they did so in a context in which the public had already stopped using aerosols. Aerosol use had already declined at the point at which the Montreal Accord effectively moves toward the ban in chlorofluorocarbons. Now, what that means is we have a story in our arsenal in which conservatives and liberals, this occurred when Republicans were in power, conservatives were in power, worked together, and we got a positive outcome. The effect was positive for humankind. To the extent that we have those kinds of stories, we're not featuring our failures but our successes in a climate issue And what we're saying is instructive. We have the same thing about clean water and clean air. Clean water and clean air acts were passed under Republicans, signed into law by Republicans. We need to turn back and say, remember the problem? Science identified the problem. Now, notice, we're giving science the credit for its work in this process. And the public understood the problem, which is why we have to always be communicating with the public someplace in the mix. And we want to drink clean water. We want to have clean air. And we want it for our children and grandchildren. We had a consensus, conservatives and liberals, we got the change. In order to drive change now, we need to have stories in our arsenal of changes that have been made where we all work together for the collective good. There's a difference in frame of mind between you and I differing on political grounds and you and I working together for the common good. Those narratives help drive the sense of collective
0: Doesn't this require some sort of ecosystem with the journalistic community in in some sort of very deep, rich way? Because the scientists themselves are not going to be able to tell these success stories just by uh, talking about their data. There seems to be a need for that relationship to grow stronger in these certain areas.
1: We need to have scientists telling the stories and teachers telling the stories so that journalists are telling the stories in a culture in which the stories are there and they're already resonating. But there are instances within the last couple of years in which major media outlets have gone back to the story of clean air, clean water, and chlorofluorocarbons, and political leaders have helped that process. There is an op-ed that is placed, I believe it was in the New York Times, by Republicans who had worked on clean air and clean water. And what it argues is the science was strong, we agreed with the science, Democrats and Republicans worked together, and we did something good. We helped clean up air and water with government action. Government action as a result, parens, isn't always bad. Sometimes government is good, people who are worried about government overreach. And the op-ed then goes on to argue that's where we are with climate To the extent that you saw that in the New York Times, not the Wall Street Journal, the placement could have been better. Nonetheless, the placement matters because it got out into the public, in the public arena. Same thing happened with a New Yorker article about chlorofluorocarbons. We're beginning to see the narrative come forward in the context of climate change. Rhetorical context matters in the way in which people interpret their own actions.
0: We've also, as you mentioned earlier, there's been a lot of instances lately where journalists and and uh, the wider media landscape now have caught errors in the scientific process. Leaks, I like to call them. And sort of helped come back to the scientific community for, for a bit of correction. Uh, and I'm wondering how you see that process where science it gets a little leaky. Papers get out and that shouldn't get out. The Wakefield paper is a great example of that. Uh, how, how important is it for science to do a better job of policing their, their own papers coming out, or do we need a more educated populace on how the process of science works? In my
1: world, science needs to visually police science, journalism needs to visually police journalism, and journalism needs to vigilantly police scientific claims, particularly claims that are made by non-scientists about what scientists know. But when, for example, A journalist thinks that there's something suspect about the science. Journalists are supposed to hold those in power accountable. Scientists are in power. Scientists have an enormous amount of authority. And here the Wakefield case is instructive because a crusading British journalist contributed importantly to ultimately having that article retracted. To the extent that we have the capacity in the journalistic community to understand the science and to follow up with the investigative steals of a reporter, the journalistic and scientific community work in one to ensure that science continues to be self correcting. And we ought to celebrate that not and not worry
0: about it. But it took, you know, a decade for that retraction to happen of that paper. And in that time an immense amount of damage was done to uh, to the narrative around vaccines and, and, uh, and the connection to autism
1: the The first um, the, the journalist who was working on that actually was out there with his articles long before the retraction occurred. I view Wakefield as ultimately a failure of the scientific community to retract as expeditiously as it ought to. The scientific community had failed to replicate very, very quickly and sadly, that article never should have been published. but all that money that was spent, you know, showing that you couldn't replicate the finding could have been spent doing something else. So, when science doesn't do its job and it publishes something that shouldn't be published, there's a cost to science. It's an opportunity cost in use of resources that could have been placed elsewhere. You also, in The Lancet, which published that article, they commissioned an article critiquing the article, and it's in the same issue. You read the critique and say, with this critique, why are you publishing Wakefield at all? They should not have published first failure of science, that it took 12 years to correct second failure of science. But what science did well was immediately move to show that you couldn't replicate. And you had major, a major investigation by a major British council." of the problems involving the, Wake, in the Wakefield situation, driven largely by this crusading journalist who, I believe started publishing in the early 2000s. So he was on this reasonably quickly, um, and he uncovered three out of four of the major scandals underlying the Wakefield article. So hooray for journalism. Now here's what journalism did poorly. One journalist did a great job, but the other journalist who covered it covered the press conference that Wakefield had instead of reading the article. If they'd read the article and read the issue of Lancet, they would have found the critique. They would have covered the critique. And by covering the critique, they would have discredited the Wakefield article. If they hadn't covered just the press conference, in other words, they weren't doing their job. They weren't going back to the primary source. And then secondly, Wakefield makes a statement in the press conference as after publication of the article, big hyping press conference, which universities have got to get away from. Universities are playing a role in hurting science when they hype the science. But Wakefield's recommendation that people not take the triple jab and go to single shots is not warranted by the article. It's not in the article. They take that recommendation and they run with it. And in the process, they create the sense that there is a scientific problem with this this, immunization structure that actually isn't there. Now, at that moment, if the journalistic community instead of covering it as a controversy and giving Wakefield the privileged position because he was in this elite journal, had looked carefully at it, they would have covered the statement by his collaborator at the same press conference, exact same press conference. A collaborator of his, his co-author, stood up and said, that's a bad idea. So imagine if instead of Wakefield recommends X, you had two co-authors disagree about desirability. The media framing of that was bad. They should have framed the controversy in the original Lancet exchanges with the critique article played up against Wakefield, and they should have featured his co-author saying that's a really bad idea. He actually says something to the effect of children could die as a result of that recommendation. Now, that's bad journalism. Then we had false balance for the next 12 years as journalists waited for Lancet to retract and treated this as if, There was legitimate controversy when there wasn't. The replications were coming in one after another saying they couldn't replicate. That's a journalistic failure, too.
0: So how do we get better at this? I mean, there's the notion of of, uh, how quickly articles are retracted and how public that information is because retractions come with basically no information uh, to a general audience. And then there's how journalists are approaching these stories with more nuance. But both those communities are under extraordinary pressure from all – alternative reward systems that make that very difficult. So how do we kind of start to reform this retraction issue?
1: Well, first, we have to make sure that when something is retracted and the the study is reprised, that is, we're explaining what was retracted, the fact of retraction comes into every sentence that is about the finding so that people don't process the finding itself and then process retraction because the memory trace will have been laid down about the finding, and that's difficult to dislodge. Notice what journalism has been doing since the measles outbreak in the United States. Take a look at the sentence structure and you see good journalism, the disgraced, discredited finding that, totally unsupported by science. That You're seeing journalists making very strong statements so that nobody makes the measles autism Association before they've created they've got a context which says discredited discredited, discredited and that's the first thing that's important. the second thing that journalism has been doing very effectively is' putting up the five myths about the measles about measles and measles vaccines. The frame of that is it's false. Now, as I'm reading my five, I'm saying it's false, it's false, it's false. And in the process, what you've seen in the last two months is very good journalism by very good science reporters. The tragedy is the number of news outlets that have cut back on their science reporting. We have extraordinarily talented journalists, well-trained in science, who should be writing for every outlet that reaches the public. We need them at times like this.
0: So, I have to mention something that i'm I've been uncomfortable with in the measles outbreak that the tone was that was as you said, uh, there was a lot of journalistic integrity not creating that space uh, between the lines for expansion. But it seems to have shifted where there's a lot of shaming happening on people that don't vaccinate their kids uh, and uh, personally, I worry about whether that's actually an effective way. Uh, to message this out, or is this going to drive a group further away? I think if I was on the other side of that, uh, that it would a feel terrible, mm-hmm. and, and b uh, like push me away from uh, considering the source here, the the science as as something remotely credible.
1: Uh, the the danger is that you prompt people to begin to counter argue, and as a result, instead of shifting positions, they deepen their position; and it becomes more deeply held. And you know the, the question becomes, how do we create a context in which the parents who are making the decision are informed about the potential consequences both for themselves and for other children and other unvaccinated adults in a way that doesn't suggest that because you made this decision earlier, I think you're a lesser being and I'm going to treat you with disdain. And the problem with treating the individuals who've made this decision as if you know, they are these dangerous culprits and villains is, in fact, they will lock down on their behavior instead of change their behavior. We will know more about how to affect change as people study these kinds of interactions. We know less than we ought to in this circumstance because we've never had a live situation that is analogous to this to be able to study. You can't really study this effectively in the lab.
0: So we're about to enter another election cycle. It feels like they never end. And we're going to be faced with a number of presidential candidates that are going to be talking about issues that relate back to science. And that brings us to side check. And I sort of stumbled upon this a, a couple weeks ago, and um, I was impressed about how quickly it, you were vetting uh, what uh, representing what was scientific consensus and vetting uh, individual press conferences from different um, different politicians what was sort of the genesis behind this concept? Why a science check was needed going into this election?
1: When Michelle Bachman in the last election made an allegation about the effects of, I believe it was a vaccine. Um, in it was HPV. yeah, in, in public space on national television. And the journalists in the real context didn't know how to respond to the statement as clearly as they ought to, because the time to contextualize is immediately. That should have been shot down immediately. It happened quickly, but not as quickly as one would have liked. We realized at factcheck.org, which has been in existence since 2003, that we needed to have science capacity in our staff, where very specific kind of science journalism training was at place, so that it didn't take us as long as it took us to get the fact check. We got it fact checked, but if we would had a science reporter on staff we would have been up there instantly because we, we were covering all those debates. We were mm-hmm. filing in real time on those debates, and that happened very close to one of the debates. And so we could have fed into the media stream with our debate coverage, mm-hmm. the correction, instead of doing it about 12 hours later. Um, we got a call from a, a foundation that was interested in providing some funding for us. They asked, what would you like to do? We said, we think our next priority would be to try to do some science checking with real a real science journalist on staff who will immediately spot the error. We will have we will have to spend less investigative time. The person will know immediately who to go to in order to get the right quotes and the information. And as a result, we might be able to get the correction into the bloodstream of journalism more quickly. That's how it happened. It's, it's thanks to Michelle Bachman.
0: Thank you, Michelle Bachman. I think that's going to be a first on this show. I, I do have to say, though, sometimes assessing the scientific consensus is exceptionally hard. Um, so... I imagine that this isn't just a like a, like fact check where you're able to actually just check numbers and check what they've said. There's going to be a lot more nuance with this. Is that a concern um, in terms of how you're going to navigate this forward? In a, a, it's going to be a very uh, um, hyper-motivated political climate going into the next election.
1: It is. But if you look on the fact check site, you'll see sources we trust. And we use the sources we trust. We, we basically say you, you have to stop. When you're trying to find out what we know, and say what are the sources of the knowable that certify it in a way that is trustworthy through methods that are disclosed, with individuals who across time have a track record of success. So if you look to sources we trust, you'll see that we trust the Congressional Budget Office, we trust the Department of Labor statistics. The more partisan groups, we are interesting, but we're going to scrutinize them much, much, much more carefully. How do we know in science? When you have the Royal Society and the National Academy of Sciences standing up and saying something, it is for us, source we trust. When you have the AAAS standing up and saying something, source we trust. When you have a climate assessment done by high-level individuals carefully vetted, source we trust. When all three agree on something and they all issue climate reports that agree with each other, sources we trust. Part of what a, a journalistic fact-check operation does is says to its readership, these are the sources that we go to in order to say the the best available knowledge is here. Now, it might not ultimately prove to be as encompassing as, as you would like, but it's the best available, and that's the source that we're going to trust. The other thing that we try to do with both Fact Check and its subgroup, Side Check, is to tell you how we know what we know, and we try to provide links to primary sources. The best way to persuade someone that something is known and knowable is to let them see how it is known and let them examine the credentials of the people who say that they know it and the track record of the people who say they know it. That's why sources that we trust is so important on the fact check site. Because if you say, well, they said that was Department of Labor Statistics, I don't trust Department of Labor Statistics, then we have nothing left that we can say to you because we're not going to go out and do surveys of employment in the, in the United States using a you know a payroll survey or a household survey. We're going to trust what they do. If somebody points out flaws in it, we will link to that if we think that's legitimate. But in general, we'll go to sources we trust to get consensus.
0: Do you think there's actually going to be enough information coming out on the political trail that SciCheck is going to receive requests to check stuff on a daily basis? I mean, on when you look at the other stuff on factcheck.org, there, there's no shortage of, of claims that come out on a daily basis. But Against science, is there enough?
1: When we first put put up this area, we asked that question. We said, when we get into the political campaign, there will be because of the nature of the issues. Um, so we weren't we weren't, had no doubts about we 2016. We'd be very very busy. Um, now now notice, you know, we'd, we've been up about a month and a half. Um, look at what's been happening in the last month and a half. We've had no absence of things to write about. Um, I would love a world in which there was no inaccurate science out there for us to check, and we could say to our very talented science reporter, well, then you can come over and help us with some of this other stuff, because he's also a very talented reporter.
0: I was actually most impressed uh, with the coverage of, uh, and this is what we covered a couple weeks ago, um, for our loyal listeners you would have heard in our science news segment, we talked about um, uh, President Obama's briefing about, uh, the economic return from the Human Genome Project, where you overstated by a factor of two how much what the economic return actually was. I was impressed about that because that I've never seen any sort of fact-checking on on science impact back into the economy. Do you see that as an, a, as an area that will be continued to be examined un, under side-check?
1: Because the attacks on science undervalue its economic impact those who defend science are going to tend to overvalue its economic impact. And as a result, we think it's going to be, one, an issue at play, and two, something which there's going to be a tendency to understate on one side, overstate on the other, and as a result, a need for a group to come in and say, what can we reasonably know? Now, anytime you're trying to project a future economic impact, you've got all sorts of variables, and we have to always be extremely careful about, about saying, and some of this is is inexact, but it's the best that we can know at this point by these measures as ascertained by these individuals. Yeah, I think we're going to be talking about it in the future.
0: Are you hoping that more than just the general public utilizes this tool? Obviously, I, I can hear in, in what you're saying that you're hoping journalists start to use this as a tool for when they start to write um, public interest stories around these scientific issues. But is this also a play to influence policymakers too?
1: We have 87,000 subscribers. We have a reasonable number of them who have .gov at the end of their email addresses. We don't know anything more than that. We have a reasonable number who have EDU, and we have a reasonable number when you look at what's, what else is in the email address. It's the name of a newspaper. It's the name of a news outlet. We also, when we do our surveys every four years, we find we have a reasonable number of high school and college teachers. So we have a very, very diverse subscriber base, but that's not actually where we get our impact. We get our impact because our stories are picked up and run in mainstream news outlets. So, you know, when one of our stories is featured, you know, in USA Today, um, we're, or Yahoo, we're being carried out through another platform to a mass audience. And we've already seen with the side check articles, we're starting to get references inside our other articles. So the focus of the article is not about our side check, using the side check as the informational source to say, and that statement was called out as being inaccurate. That's how fact check works. Most of fact check's impact comes because journalistic outlets cite it and its conclusions.
0: So, zooming out a little bit, you've been at, uh, at work on the political landscape for decades now and i'm curious what your sort of opinion is on how we're doing as a scientific community in terms of influencing decisions and what the future challenges hold for us
1: the only place i get to see science influenced the process is science being quoted in the press because i focus on the press so i don't know what they're doing on capitol hill when they go and testify i'm sure they're doing a wonderful job but i'm not there to watch them what we can see in the journalistic stream is that scientists sometimes when they're talking in public do a remarkably good job at providing the analogies that help us understand the science and at other times when they they're faced with something which is a criticism of science they say things that appear troubling because they overestimate the extent to which it's damaging science in the quote that they are they are offering to the public through news thereby increasing the likelihood that people overgeneralize that science is broken when, in fact, science isn't broken. Science is, is still highly self-correcting. So we're seeing two different kinds of strains in the, in the press coverage of science. But the one that I'm most impressed with is these very sophisticated scientists who take a topic such as climate change and find analogies to help the public understand the science. The one I liked best was on Arctic sea ice extent. Uh, Arctic sea ice extent rose in 2013. Um, it still has a strong downward trend, but it rose in 2013. It dropped a little bit in, in 2014. And a scientist was quoted in 2013, and I love this, trying to explain the change from 1979 to 2013. Remember, there had been an increase in 2013. And he said, the change between 1979 and 2013 is so great that you could see it from the moon. Now, a person just sitting in their living room doesn't understand trends, has never looked at an Arctic sea ice chart in their lives, never seen a NASA satellite photo, can say, you mean it's dropped so much that if I was sitting on the moon, I could see the change? That's an effective piece of communication. So to the extent that scientists find a way to translate what they know into language that ordinary people can't process and accept, they're helping us a lot. They're helping us by doing the science. That's their biggest contribution. But finding a way to explain what the finding means in terms that are intelligible is a contribution, and many are, making it, are doing it very, very effectively when they're talking in mass media. I hope everybody who listens to you goes right now to factcheck.org and sends us things that they see that they think misuse science because you know, we get our, our our largest amount of help in the political area from people who subscribe who see something they find problematic in politics and they send it to us and say have you checked this do you know what's going on here if any of your listeners hear something or see something they think is a problematic use of science please send it to factcheck.org can't promise we'll write something about it can promise we'll look at it carefully.
0: Thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds.
1: You're welcome.
2: Wow, that's a really interesting interview, Kishore. Um, And I actually, what I liked, I think, most about her is that she comes off as so level-headed. You know, she doesn't seem that politicized uh, for someone who is living in that political world. And I love the fact that she understands that sometimes criticisms can point out errors in the science, and that we shouldn't be afraid of engaging in a dialogue with, you know, the people who I call the hyper vigilantes, right? The people who are always looking to, you know, point out that the science is not complete, that there's still room for in- other interpretations, et etc. And, and sometimes it's really frustrating to talk to people like that, because you think, wow, I'm never going to convince you. And, you know, they, it, it's just hard to have a dialogue. But as she pointed out in the um, example about NASA's slide number five about you know 2014 being the warmest year, you know sometimes people can point out uh, a way in which you've either misinterpreted or overinterpreted your data, or a place where you need to go back and do some more research, or simply you know cast the figure in a different way.
0: She actually wrote a paper about the Arctic sea ice level that came out in PNAS, and this is a one of the most fascinating science communication papers you will ever read. And really what she looks at is because of that omission of where they don't acknowledge the 60% drop in sea ice in that one year, there's partisan outlets that started coming out with stories like sea ice is is rising by 60% right now. And that omission opened the door. And what this study that she did was, was took a look at a strategy to actually overcome that partisan filter that really rested on leveraging cre- credibility of the institutions that were doing the work. So NASA, as she mentioned, has a ton of credibility with a general populace. So first, she put NASA as the number one thing that was on that article, l- instantly leveraging their credibility. Two, she created opportunities for audience input, whether it be commenting or an engine for the scientists to actually communicate with them. Then they use visualizations of the data to actually show the trend line. So then rather than just showing a static graph that shows the data all at once, actually it went piecemeal over time, starting from 1990 all the way through 2015. And that really emphasized that we're on a downward trend, even if we have these little hiccups or there's a little up and down. And then lastly, they made an analogy. And she alluded to the analogy where from the moon, we see less ice. And that's something that everyone can gravitate to. And she called this the leva strategy. And it actually worked in convincing people that were identified as conservative, that were more aligned with this partisan uh, filter that said that this... Arctic sea ice is not really melting. It actually did convince them uh, that there is something happening. It showed effect in a control group. I was eminently impressed with that article.
2: Yeah. So, what does LEVA stand for?
0: Uh, Leveraging credibility involving the audience is the I, V is visualizing the data, and A is making an analogy that captures the imagination of the audience.
2: You know, that's just really good rhetorical, you know, skill, right? I mean, I should do that for every class that I teach, (laughs) leverage my credibility, remind them that I have a PhD. (laughs) Involve the audience. I do
0: not recommend going up against (laughs) Kathleen in a debate. She definitely seemed a master of rhetoric, but one thing that also uh, came out of the of the paper that I thought was interesting is how she emphasized integrity so much, whether it be the journalistic integrity that's that's represented on on SciCheck, but m- most importantly, that I was surprised about was the scientific integrity. How important it was to put that up front uh, and make that as communicated as possible. Uh, so that people maintain some respect for um, for scientists themselves. Because if that continues to drop, we're going to be in a heap of trouble.
2: Yeah, and I mean, that's I've always felt that, you know, everybody makes mistakes. I make mistakes all the time. And the only thing that I can do is try to correct them and inform people, be honest when I've made a mistake – to Admit it, and I feel like there are so many times when you see someone who tries to backpedal and and you know not take responsibility for the mistake. Where if they just said, Look, I made a mistake, and here's the truth, then you can continue to believe them and you know they maintain their integrity.
0: And we talked about the self correcting science cycle, and, yeah. and she wants <clears throat> people to actually understand that process a little bit more and have some appreciation for it. And we talked about the Wakefield article, the most cited. Uh, article that anti vaccine um, proponents used to to emphasize a link and how poorly it was reported that there was disagreement in that moment that this should have even been published, but then it took twelve years for for the official retraction to occur uh, i 'm really concerned about that that time in that scale and i, I hadn 't been concerned before I talked to her. Uh, what do you think? Do you think time is of the essence now for, for science, that we can't just self-correct in the same way we have?
2: Well, I, I think there is a part of it. I also think there's a culture of, you know, trying to keep scientists responsible. There's this whole reproducibility movement, um, in, you know, in, in all of the sciences, it seems to be coming up and again and again, where people are trying to reproduce, you know, findings. And I, I think that's, I think that's important. And so I think the culture is changing. And I think this notion of science, that scientists always have to be exactly right, and they can never make a mistake is also changing. And I hope scientists take that to heart and are not afraid to talk to journalists, you know, and and knowing that if they make a mistake or they misspeak, they have a chance to correct. But one of the things I found a little bit depressing in the in the uh, interview was this notion that she feels that we really need to convince a set of elite policymakers. And, you know, that made me really sad because, you know, I mean, she's right, right? There are people in our country who have have a lot of power, they wield a lot of power. And yes, we need to convince them um, to, you know, do policies that will help our society that are in line with the science that we know of how the future is going to look. Um, but it is depressing to think that, you know, we live in this, you know, presumably wonderfully democratic country. And yet we have to convince this handful of people who, you know, are probably pretty opinionated themselves.
0: Well, I look at it as being hopeful, In the sense that if this experiment actually works, and we don't know if it's actually going to work, that politicians actually take pause before they make scientific claims, that'll be a huge step forward. And that will be us influencing those few elites to think about science when they're making policy statements. But I think that's going to be a great step forward, because it will reintroduce a level of respect Um, back for what science represents, and that there's a community out there that actually cares about this. And I think that's the bigger, bigger piece here. Uh, And one of those communities is the journalistic community. (laughs) You know,
2: and I hope, you know, to to quote Colbert, I hope that gets us closer to the truthiness.
0: I hope so too.
2: (laughs) So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds and you can find us on Twitter at Inquiring show, on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas or anything else you'd like to minds at climatedesk.org. This episode is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips with over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more. The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming or DVD and CD. But best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And now for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of The Science of Mindfulness, a research-based path to well-being. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds.
0: Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award winning producer Rian Chien.
2: And we're your hosts. I'm Andre Viscontas. You can find me on Twitter at IndreVis.
0: And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. The legends are true. We're overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes.